Some of you here will have heard stories of my and Rebecca's prevails uh, when it comes to moving. Ever since we met back in college 23 years ago, we have moved every two years. We met at Walford, and then two years after that, we went to seminary at Duke, and then two years after that, we got married and moved together into an apartment, and then after that, we moved to Henderson, North Carolina, and two more years, we were back in Durham, and two years after that, we were up in New York City somehow, and on and on and on. Last summer, as we crossed the two-year mark here in Jacksonville, we toasted ourselves for having finally achieved this unprecedented stability. Only, have to, only to have to move out of our house for a few days the following week because our air conditioner was on the fritz. Last week there was an article in the New York Times about moving. More specifically, it was about movers. The title of the article was Movers See All, and They Have Thoughts on Your Relationship. The journalist Gina Shirellis interviewed movers from a number of moving firms in the city. Some of the stories she heard were funny. One couple bickering because they couldn't agree on what furniture was going with them in the move and what was being left behind for goodwill. Another couple had a bad habit of getting into fights every couple of months, scheduling the movers to come and take one of their stuff away, and then making up and canceling the appointment right at the last minute. Most of the stories she heard, however, were tragic. Couples who were breaking up and were red-eyed from crying when the moving crews arrived, or at times standing there still screaming at one another. A group of female friends hurriedly moving one of their own out while her abusive husband was away at work. Movers the article points out, often have a front row seat to one of the most stressful, vulnerable, or even sometimes romantic moments in a couple's relationship. As one of the movers themselves pointed out, people seem to think that movers are like flies on the wall, so they don't hesitate to have very open conversations with each other in front of you so you kind of get a sense of their dynamic, of their relationship, of their petty grievances. You see into their private lives in a weird way that you never would have an opportunity to otherwise. And it's true. Movers see our junk, all our junk, the hidden things, the dirty things, 
They see the randomness that we keep stashed in the bottom drawers of our cabinets. They find the things that have been forgotten about behind the furniture, and they stumble across the dirt that has been swept under the rug, hoped to have been forgotten. The thorough ones will actually even box up the trash out of your trash cans while they are doing their jobs. They see everything. And so I'd be willing to bet that in a lot of cases, people's movers get to know them better than even their friends do. Because friends... Friends are the ones that we're hiding that stuff from. Friends are the ones that we tidy up for. Every so often we might let a friend into our messes. But usually only a few and usually only for a little while. Because by and large we like to keep our messes to ourselves. And brothers and sisters, there are messes all around us. As our Matthew text pointed out, sorry, as our Matthew text opened this morning, we found Jesus in the midst of teaching the crowds. Suddenly, Matthew tells us, one of the local religious leaders bursts in pushes his way to the front and kneels at Jesus' feet, begging him to return home with him because his young daughter had just died. Just lay your hand on her, he says, and she'll live. Jesus gets up to leave, and as they're hurrying along, they pass a woman standing on the side of the road. This woman, we learn, has been suffering from an hemorrhage for 12 years now. 12 years. If you want to know how long of a time that is, 12 years ago, South Carolina was actually good at football. It's many moons. You have to believe that a bleed that persistent and that prolonged must have been absolutely physically debilitating. But alongside that, it would have also made this woman an outcast in her community, ritually unclean. In Luke's version of the story, he tells us that she was so desperate that she had spent every last penny that she had on treatments, each of which had failed her. And so now, down to her last chance, she sneaks up behind Jesus, simply hoping to touch the hem of his cloak. Jesus, again, is being hustled along the way by the father of this young child, but he pauses in this moment to acknowledge this woman who's now been healed, to praise her for her faith and send her along with a blessing. But his day, of course, isn't yet over. 
After going to the man's house and raising his daughter, he immediately finds himself being followed by two blind men who are begging him to be healed. And then as soon as they're healed, as soon as he sends them off on their way, suddenly Jesus looks up and he sees a crowd of people bringing somebody else to him in need of a healing. Matthew tells us that after all of this, that Jesus looks out at the crowds around him. And he has compassion for them, for he says they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Most of the time, whenever folks like us think about Jesus' words here in this text, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, something in us wants to assume that what he is talking about is evangelism. That what he's talking about, what he's really after here, are people who will go out, share the good news, and bring their neighbors into the fold. And yet in the context of this passage, at least in the first instance, it seems clear to me that what Jesus is hoping for is people who will go out and actually be the good news in the lives of their neighbors. Be helpers, be healers. Minister to folks who are suffering around them. Everywhere he looks in this passage, Jesus sees human need. Death, debilitation, blindness, every disease and sickness, Matthew says. And he knows that surrounded by such suffering, it will take a team. This is one of the reasons, of course, why he calls the twelve. But even 12 aren't enough, and so that's why later on in the gospel he sends out the 70, but even 70 can't do it all. And so then at the very end of Matthew, we are told he tells all of his disciples to go and to spread out to all places and to all peoples and to share his good news, to be his good news in the lives of all of his children. And then that's also why, as we read in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we see the church in Jerusalem establish the first diaconate. Which brings us to our service here this morning. As we install a new class of deacons here at HAB, Now hear me say, every single person in this room and every one of y'all tuning in from out there joining us online is called and expected to use the words of our Lord to love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, in every church, 
men and women are set aside as deacons to focus even more intently on the needs of the congregation's members. And my friends, here just as everywhere, there are many needs. Many of them are known. If you'd like to know what they are, the best place to start would be the church's prayer list. But many of them are also largely unknown, kept quiet, hidden, secret, for reasons that are both good and sometimes bad. But like those New York City movers, as deacons, you will find yourselves face to face with the messes in people's lives. The broken places, diagnoses, misfortunes, bad news, chronic illnesses, fears, phobias, setbacks, both personal and professional. Like the man's daughter in Matthew's story, some situations may well appear hopeless. And yet the calling of a deacon is to step into that hopelessness and help their friends find hope. Like the woman with the hemorrhage, some will feel taboo. And yet you, as representatives of this church, of the church, and of its Lord, will need to cross that invisible boundary and share the love and the grace of God where others may find themselves reluctant to go. If nothing else, you will be a tangible, physical reminder that in their sufferings, our brothers and our sisters are not alone, that they are not isolated, because there are few things in this world as isolating as suffering, physical, emotional, psychological suffering. So you will remind them that they have a church family all around them that is not just willing to pray for them in their struggles, but is also willing to walk alongside them step by step through the shadows. So, to Dee and to Trent, to Debbie and Sharon and Mark and all of the other deacons who are already serving, thank you. Thank you for being willing to step into the messiness, seen and unseen, of life all around you. Thank you for being willing to serve in the messiness and to love in the messiness. 
the harvest is plentiful, Jesus told his disciples. Therefore, I ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. We have so asked, and you have answered. Thank you for answering the call. May the Lord bless you in your ministry here among us, and may we all pray and look forward to see how the Lord will use you as a blessing in all of our messes. Amen.